All right, everyone, welcome to Brazen Education. I'm so glad you're here with me today. I know I was on a hiatus for a couple of months. If you listened to my last episode, I actually uploaded um, the speech I gave at my father's funeral. And the reason I decided to do that is because my dad always said like when that time comes, he wanted it to be like a homegoing, like a celebration. And so I decided to give tips that my father had taught me during his life. Um, and I felt like that was like fitting because a lot of times on this show, I just give tips and I give feedback. But with that being said, um, I wasn't expecting my father to pass away. That was something totally unexpected. We made it through 2020. I was like, this is great. Um, the episode, the podcast episode I did before that was about how like 2020 was like okay for me. I talked about how I had everyone in my family that was really close to me. I hadn't lost any loved ones. And then January 1st rolled around and my um, father's mother was born on New Year's Day. And so was my sister. Um, so my grandmother has passed on, but we always celebrate. And I won't put my sister's age out here, but she had one of those birthdays that ends in the five. So typically you do something big. But we didn't this year because of the pandemic. And so the next day was January 2nd. And I was supposed to call my dad and I actually took a nap. And I told my husband, I said, wake me up um, in like a couple of hours. I'm going to call dad. And I actually got woken up by my mother calling me, telling me that the paramedics are here. And then we learned that my dad didn't like survive. So for me, I wanted to be kind of transparent about like that process and what it really takes to manage mental wellness because it's something you have to actively do. It just doesn't happen. And I also am an educator. You know, I have a therapist because I am not an expert in this in this area. And so that's why I wanted to bring on Kimberly. Um, and you can see there um, um, ask otkimberly.org. So please uh, check her out because she is an expert and I knew she could bring us some information. So just some background on Kimberly. Um, she's been an occupational therapist since 2005. Um, especially care, health promotion, and health education. As OT Kimberly brings the best practice education in OT and intersectionality. She provides culturally responsive and health quality center health education with a mission to promote quality improvement and uh, class standards for health equity. Her live, her, um, live webinar courses include marriage of mental health, pain, mental health, and black indigenous people of color and immigrant communities and building therapeutic alliance in diverse populations. She is an alum of IEPUI and the University of Minnesota, and she's been a guest lecturer and panelist for Indiana University, University of Indianapolis, San Jose State University programs and occupational therapist, and she's been the found she's the founding co-chair of the Minnesota Occupational Therapy Association Equity Special Interest Group. She's a charter member of the county-based racial equity community engagement action team a past participant in Amy's Families to Families and a longtime uh, volunteer at Health Promotion, which includes mental health advocacy. And if you want to follow her on Instagram, her handle is AskOTKimberly. So Kimberly, welcome to our show today. I'm so glad to have you here. The first thing I wanted to do on our show, um, you probably know because this has been national, that we did have a mass shooting occur in Indianapolis. And I am in Indianapolis. That's where I've lived the majority of my life. And so I wanted to just uh, take a moment of silence just for the people um, who lost their lives in this senseless tragedy. Thank you so much, everyone. And if you follow my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash educator Barnes, I put an article um, that is written um, by a, a member of uh, one of the communities that was affected um, by this mass shooting. So check that out. So Kimberly, if you're going to talk about something, you first have to get to the point where you define it. So how do you define mental wellness or what does it, you know, what is mental wellness? Okay. 
So I'm going to jump into that, but I'm going to give a little disclaimer because I know some people are maybe not familiar with occupational therapy and the role within mental health. So I'm just going to give a quick history and then that definition. So occupational therapy, um, we are 104 years old and we actually were founded through the U.S. military. And our role during the World Wars was actually working with veterans who were coming back with war neuroses or what we today call post-traumatic stress syndrome. And into today, occupational therapists, we continue that role. So we work with veterans in what are called combat stress control units, as well as within our VA systems. And one of my first internships many years ago was actually at the Minneapolis VA working in a day program. We work collaboratively with psychologists, with recreational therapists to make sure the veterans would be able to get back to their best life that total mental wellness using holistic strategies. So you have your psychologist, your mental health practitioner, and then you have your occupational therapist that's looking at all these other day-to-day -day things. Um, and so I like to put that disclaimer out there. You know, I'm not the psychologist or your licensed marriage and family therapist or your LPC, but I am a part of that interprofessional team. And so in rehab, this is kind of where that comes in. When I define mental wellness, I think of it in terms of that emotional health, the social health. So a lot of us hear about that social emotional health and then your psychology, how you think about things, that balance of your, your good chemicals, your serotonin, your dopamine, where are all of those things together? It's not one dimensional, it's affected by lots of factors. It can be affected by environment. It can be affected by genetics. It can be affected by habits and routines. So ways that I see signs of really good mental wellness is, you know, is there that taking care of self, that self-care? You know, are we getting really good sleep and that good seven to eight hours of sleep? If we're consistently having insomnia, that there's a sign there's some mental distress that's going on and some things that need to probably be tuned into. Um, is there good healthy eating habits? Are we seeing good water and nutrition? There's a big relationship between what we take in and our brain health. And if we're not getting enough water dehydrated, that's gonna affect how we feel about things, how we can function. And then ultimately it's also thinking about how productive we are. If our social emotional health and our psychology is off balance, we're not gonna be able to be productive in our day-to-day -day functions. And so that means we're not gonna be productive in our family lives. We're not gonna be productive in our work lives or any other recreational, we're not exercising. So things are really getting off balance. It's also having healthy coping strategies. And so that means you have a therapist. You mentioned you have one, I have one too. It's having those people that can give you that balance to help you get through different seasons of life, whether it is you're transitioning from something you have some family things, you have grief, you've been through a divorce, you have major depression disorder, you have that accountability person to help you navigate it. You're not doing it by yourself. There's not unhealthy habits and routines to manage it. You're not self-medicating. You actually have a plan in place with somebody that is licensed and working with you. It's also having healthy social support. So it's having a team of people, whether it's friends and family who support mental health, mental wellness, or it's having a like a support group. Um, NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, they have support groups for family members or for individuals specifically to be able to get support. Sometimes when we're navigating life, we think we're the only ones dealing with things. And the reality is, is we're not. And the beauty of support groups is that you learn that you're not alone and you can hear what other people are going through and what are strategies that they're using to kind of get through things. So those are kind of, that's a long answer, but when I think about mental wellness, it's all of those things. It's not like one little thing. It's lots of little dimensions to it. Um, no, and I really appreciate that because I think sometimes people think mental wellness is just going to see a therapist. And I think yeah. that is multifaceted because one of the things I had been suffering with I will say have, um, is insomnia. That's been one thing I've been struggling with um, since my father passed. I had just been struggling with like being able to go to sleep and then being mm -hmm. able to stay asleep. And mm -hmm. there's just like so many keys. Like before my father passed, I had a hysterectomy. So he actually passed during my recovery. And so during that time, I was like, 
drinking all my water. I was getting up. I was walking. I was doing all these things. But after he had passed, I was just so depressed. And like one right. of the things like someone said to me was like, are you drinking water? And exactly. you talked about that accountability person. Sometimes we literally need that person to be like, have you drank your water today? Mm -hmm. Have you gotten up out of bed? And like, yes. we know these things, but sometimes yeah. you just need that little uh, gentle nudge or that push. And your therapist can't be that person every single time. You have your session right. with your therapist and then you're supposed to go like do what they say or reflect or make some changes. Yeah. Um, and that's hard. And so I think, I think, but you also made a good point, which kind of ties into the next topic I want to talk about is the stigma of mental mm -hmm. wellness, because you mentioned having a support group of like family and friends, but sometimes yeah. the people that's in your circle may not have the same viewpoint of mental wellness. They may even think, yeah. I know I have a lot of Christians and Catholic friends, yeah. and sometimes I get the, you didn't pray hard enough. And it's like, I'm not against praying. I am a prayer, but I also believe that there's other things that we need to do. So let's talk a little bit about like the stigma of mental wellness. How do we combat it? How do we, how do yeah. we deal with when our lives are alike? Why are you seeing, why are you seeing a therapist? Yeah. So stigma is huge. And I'm glad that you mentioned like the faith communities, because that's, that's a huge thing. I've been and been involved in like health ministry, healing ministry, and that can be a, a sore subject depending upon what your denomination is, or if you're of another faith. Um, in the larger picture, I think in our, our society as a nation, we, because we oftentimes don't understand mental wellness or mental health, it's stigmatized, stigmatized and we, we associate it with as something that is demonized. So you kind of mentioned some things with the faith. So like recently there was the mass shooting in Indianapolis. There's been other shootings across the country. And one of the common things that as a nation that we will often, there will be an assumption or a question is, well, was mental health or mental wellness an issue? And so what ends up happening is as a society, we equate mental health or mental illness as something really traumatic and we really shouldn't do that mental health is a spectrum you have anything from anxiety depression bipolar schizophrenia there's a long things and then there's just people who are dealing with grief or dealing with seasonal things you know if you had something happening you're changing work and so we have just in general a culture landscape that kind of creates a foundation for stigmatizing. And I think that's something that we, we want to change as a culture. And I, I won't speak for every culture because there's lots of subcultures, but um, you know, depending on, and I'll just speak from my experience as an individual and then from those that are in different circles of mind, we like to demonize mental health. Um, and a lot of that comes from shame. And so this is where, you know, the idea of someone having a diagnosis, and a lot of times it's just that, of depression, we don't want the label. And so there's shame that's there. Now, to be honest, in some families, there might be multiple generations of depression, but there's a shame that comes from whatever that's there. And so we don't want that label. And so if something is, if someone has depression, it's like, you don't have depression. You just don't, you just, you're not doing what you need to do. You just need to pray hard. You need to exercise more. You need to do this. Legitimately, some of us need a counselor and need to be getting into like formal care. And so oftentimes what ends up happening is the family dynamics, family systems, community systems are so ingrained that they don't give space for individuals to feel comfortable reaching out. And if they do their shame for it, you know, you're a punk, you're this and that. These are unhealthy systems that discourage getting the care that you need. And so, you know, a lot of it is systems that ex exist within our culture that are just ingrained that we maybe have a hard time getting through. Um, and, you know, as individuals, we want to be able to support our loved ones, our friends and family, so that people can get what they need to do. Therapy works, support groups work, but we just need to be able to give that space. And then in terms of the faith communities, it's just like you said, you know, same thing. People are told they have a demon, they have a character flaw, they don't have enough faith. I've heard all these things. 
in ministry. And I will say that, you know, my church in Minnesota, the first lady is a therapist. And our pastor says, you can have God and you can have therapy. Some of us need both. We need to stop this telling, you know, people that, you know, because you go to see a therapist, you don't love God or you don't have enough faith. Some of us, and if you know enough about mental health, some of it is there's an imbalance in chemicals with serotonin and dopamine levels. And we even see that in utero, you know, if a mom has low serotonin levels, I mean, that can impact the baby. So if there is chemical imbalance, you know, we need to give space for people to get the care that they need there. And if there's been major trauma, we need to give people the care that they need, the space that they need to deal with it too. Veterans that come back from the military, they've experienced some very major trauma. If you know anyone that's a veteran, and I do, who's come back, from combat, they are not the same people. They need therapy and we need to give them space to do that. And so we can't stigmatize them and say, oh, you're a punk or you're this, or you don't have enough faith because literally their brain is going through some major things. So I'm right there with you. There's so much stigma and so much needs to be done within our communities to give space for us all collectively to get what we need, which is the care. No, and I think that's super important. And that was part of the reasons why I wanted to have this episode today, because I, one of the ways I think we move forward is transparency. Because some yeah. people like, when I share with some people, like I'm seeing the therapist, people assume, oh, it's because your dad died. I'm like, no, I actually started seeing the therapist before then. I just hadn't said anything at that point in time because there are people that, even when back way back, I took my kids to therapy because my kids were born 10 weeks early and I was in the hospital. I was on bed rest for eight weeks at home then in the hospital for eight weeks on bed rest. And during that time, I went into 22 weeks and then we have 24 weeks because that's when they're viable. So we get to the 24 week mark and they gave me like this book. And I still have it in my house today. And it tells me all the things that could be wrong with them if they're born at this point in time. So mm -hmm. my kids were born at 30 weeks and two days. And, you know, one of the things they talked about was the fact that they may have some emotional difficulties or some physical difficulties. And right. it might be for almost two before they were able to physically walk. Now, if you see them today, you wouldn't ever know that it took them forever to learn how to walk. But I was stressed as a parent, but I also knew that there was a time where they said, your kids are really smart, which I was glad that they, their um, um, cognitive ability wasn't affected, but their emotional ability was not where it needed to be. So when I was asked, do you want to skip your kids up? I said, no, because I'm like, they are struggling with peer-to-peer -peer interaction on an appropriate level. So when I even said, you know, my kids are going to see a therapist, it's really helping them. Why are you doing that? Why are you taking your kids to, to a therapist? I mean, you're, I mean, someone told me I was messing up my kids because I was yeah. and don't right. you know how the parent, and I was just like, right. I, I am parenting, but I don't know how to respond when my kid has an anxiety attack. We found out that one of my sons had anxiety, you know, in the middle of, uh, in the middle of new fields. I'll never forget it. This is when it was the art museums before it became new fields. And back in that part of time, they had the winter solstice. And so part of that was touring the lily house. And so I'm in the lily house. I'm on this staircase. And my son had a whole entire panic. I had no clue what to do. And I was so mad because my husband was supposed to meet me there, did not show up. Um, so I was just like, this is his fault. He's not here with me. And, and this is why these things are happening. But when I see where my kids started to where they are now, I'm just so glad. But I think the other part of the stigma is if you go see a therapist, you need to get fixed like right now. And so when you like yeah. the, the, the mountains and the valleys with it. Because um, even my therapist says, this brief, she said, you have these uh, high points and these low points. Exactly. Said, they won't be as high and they won't be as low as you go forward. And that's mm -hmm. what people need to know. Like, it doesn't right. mean therapy doesn't work. It yeah. just means that it's, it's a process. It's a process. Yep. Yep. I, and I will, will second that, you know, I think of it as um, they're like your coach that's in the background. They're seeing what's happening in your life. 
They're giving you new ways to think about what's happening and then strategies to navigate it in a healthy way. They're giving you that support. And it's nothing I can say I have benefited through different seasons for different reasons. And it's just been life changing. And so anybody that knows me in my circle of like close family and friends, I'm always talking about mental health, get a therapist, you know, and something that was said to me many years ago is that sometimes in our personal relationships, our family and close friends need to just be family and friends. Sometimes what happens is we want to blur that boundary and we want our families and friends to be a therapist when they're not equipped for the things that you're needing help for. And so we don't want to put that burden on our loved ones. We, we really should seek out someone who is external, who's neutral, who can give you different perspectives and help support you. They're not there to judge you. They're, help, they're there to help you live your best life. So I'm all for it. I'm always advocating for it. And you're right. Um, we need to give space for one another to be able to do that and just remove the judgment. And one of the things that really impacts us or ties into it is racism and racial microaggression. And all I will say this, all microaggressions aren't necessarily racial, but they can be racial. Mm -hmm. And I know with your work, you do a lot with intersectionality. You do a lot yeah. of intentional focus on Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And so can you speak a little bit about the impact of racism and how that really impacts uh, mental health for, for, for people? Yeah. So, um, I, so when I think about racism and microaggressions, I put them into a bucket and, and some of this information is coming from friends. I have a lot of friends who are mental health counselors. And so we we're happen to be friends, but we talk about this stuff because we're invested in the healing of people and specifically black people and black people who are African-American as well as immigrant communities. So this is what is informing what I, I'm sharing and you know what they've shared with me over the years. So in terms of like racism and microaggressions, they're kind of all in this bucket of kind of racialized trauma there's something that's called race-based trauma theory. Um, there's a number of BIPOC psychologists, um, I think Comas Diaz, Dr. Helen Neville, she's from the University of Illinois Champaign. There's a whole theory that's there. If you look up those names and that research, you'll be able to find it. Um, the race-based trauma theory is really centered on the lived experiences of BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And the reasoning why is that the DSM-5, which is what the licensed mental health practitioners use to diagnose, does not account for race-based trauma. And post-traumatic stress syndrome is sometimes um, listed or sometimes diagnosed Black or, in, or other um, communities of color. Our lived experiences have sometimes been put underneath that bucket of post-traumatic stress but the way that I've had it defined to me is with post-traumatic stress, there may have been an event or some events, like if you've gone off to war and then you're living in those after effects. With race-based trauma, it's different in that you have an event, a racialized event, a racism or, you know, for instance, here in Minnesota, George Floyd was a year ago. Well, a couple months after that, there was a Somali American gentleman that was killed. And then here we are, we've got Dante. Um, a month ago, there was a little black boy with autism who was choked out by local county. There's always something. So with race-based trauma, it's these events that keep happening. They're not stopping. And a good example of this is my great-grandmother. She lived until she was 99. When she was uh, you know, a young adult, her and her husband, they were the first black residents in their neighborhood in Gary. When they were in their neighborhood, their neighbors who were all white were having these secret meetings. Now here in Minnesota, they put policies in place that basically forbid black people to live in all these neighborhoods. But in Gary at the time, they didn't do that. They basically said, we're getting the heck out of here. And one by one, all of her neighbors, they just moved out in the middle of the night. So my grandmother and her husband were like, where did all our neighbors go and what's the problem? Well. The problem was, is their neighbors, and if you know anything about white flight in Northern Indiana and different places across the country, they didn't want to live 
by or with black people. And so they made it known. And throughout my grand great grandmother's life, she shared different stories of racialized experiences growing up in the deep South, migrating North. And then even in her last decade of life, the last few years, she lived in a care center. She was also continuing to experience racialized events. We had to, as a family, bring in pictures of her when she was younger because the people were thinking, oh, this is a worthless old black woman. That's racialized trauma where the trauma does not stop. It continues across the lifespan. And so in terms of our mental health, it's distressing. And there's research that shows that. Um, there's an author, Dr. Rita Walker, she says, or she looks at black people who live in predominantly white communities and then black people who live in predominantly black communities and mental health outcomes and suicidality. And what they found is that if you are a black person and you live in a predominantly black community, you actually have better mental health outcomes and your suicidality rate is less. And those who live in white communities, predominantly white communities, mental health outcomes are worse and the suicidality is higher. And the theory or thought behind all of that is that when you are in your predominantly black communities, there is a little bit of a protective nature. There is affirmations of your humanity. There's affirmation of your lived experiences. So if you're experiencing something, you have affirmation and people will back you up and support you and saying you are valid, you are human, you know, all of these things. You don't get that in predominantly white communities. And so it does a number on the mental health. Similar things can be found in black immigrant communities. When you look at first generation Caribbean Americans who come to the US and you look at how health outcomes, both physical and mental health, the first generation does awesome. They have really great health. But when you start looking at second and third generations, the mental health, the physical health starts to deteriorate. And it's not because, you know, they've all of a sudden adopted an American diet. It is because by that second and third generation, there has been sort of this being indoctrinated into the American life of white supremacy and having those racialized experiences and getting these messages you know, of, you know, you're not okay because you're black and having racialized experiences. So many of my friends who are black who grew up, side, grew up outside the US say, I had never had these issues when I was in Jamaica. I never had these issues when I was in Kenya. What is going on? You know, it's, it's a mind shift, it's life altering. And so with all of them, we have these conversations, especially like in a place here in Minnesota where there's been so much trauma that we talk about our exit strategies. Like we have to get to places where there's more of us because this is so hard on the mental health. So it, it really can affect you in so many ways. I liked how you mentioned racialized trauma because when I think about my career, fifth year in education, I can think about so many racialized events that's happened throughout my career. And most of the time, um, black uh, professionals, we find ourselves in situations where we are one of the few black people in our spaces. And even for myself in particular, I've been the only English, uh, as a new language teacher in a whole entire district that was black. I've been the only librarian in a whole entire district that was black. I've been in schools where I'm the only black teacher in the English department. And so all of these events will happen. And then you make this choice, right? Choice A is I want to speak up about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Choice B, I'm just going to suck it down and move forward. Mm -hmm. And either one of those choices has a bearing on your mental wellness. If I say something and you can't see what I'm saying, then I'm being problematic. I'm being difficult, which then changes your landscape at work. If you keep it to yourself, you get to a point where it's like all these events are happening and you could find yourself in a situation where you just like bubbled over because you haven't gotten that out. And so I think that's why it's important to have um, racial affinity spaces um, for people. And I think there's so much confusion about what it is and what it isn't. And I think the one thing if you're doing it well, it's not forced upon people. So it's like 
just because I'm black doesn't mean I have to participate in racial identity groups. If I don't need that or feel that's for me, I don't have to be there. And so I think that's a, a, a main uh, misconception, but it's needed because you need that. You need that affirmation. You need so you need to be able to tell your story. And even if the person wasn't there, they're like, you are heard, you are seen, you are believed. And I think what makes it so hard on your mental health is when you know something has happened. Okay. I explained to someone uh, about how I was in this situation. At, I'm at a meeting, um, leadership meeting, only a black person in the meeting, and a white colleague just started crying, yelling and screaming and carrying on. There was no response to this person's behavior. In this same meeting, I just raised a concern and I was aggressive. And when I went to explain this situation to another person, they were like, well, you know, maybe she was having a bad day and maybe it was how you said what you said. And so I was trying to explain like how I got called out when I wasn't doing any of these other things. I wasn't slamming my hands down the table. I wasn't raising my voice. I wasn't crying. But the response was like I tried to express myself and I wasn't heard and it wasn't seen. But it also goes back to the fact of like, I know I can't slam my hand on the table. I know I can't burst out into tears or elevate my voice because that will cause problems. And that whole oh, goes back to like the the toll on your mental uh, wellness. So I know I mentioned racial affinity groups and what are other things um, either from yourself or with other uh, people that's in your um, community um, suggest to people um, BIPOC when they are in these situations and like, I know you say, you know, you were talking about a plan to get out, but what if you can't get out? What if like an exit yeah. strategy is not yeah. for you because of whatever's yeah. going on, then what do you yeah. say? So one thing, so I have some friends who they're in that exact position. So their home country is either like go back there or they have, they have restrictions on where they can go. So one therapy, um, finding yourself a culturally congruent therapist that actually knows racialized trauma, um, that will actually help you with navigating that sort of thing. Two, if you're, if you're in a workspace, so I've been in workspaces where there were no affinity groups. And so something that I did a couple years ago is I actually just through social media started reaching out to people who were of my same cultural background or who were black heritage and said, you know, I'm interested in putting together just a group of black women in health, or if you're black women in education who just meet once a month to just talk, meet up for lunch and just, you know, support. And a lot of what we did with those groups is just meet. We talk about our professions, but we talk about like what we were experiencing because all of us, just like what you're describing, we're like the only ones. And we go through things and we're like, we know what we experience, mm -hmm. but we're being told, no, that's not what happens. And then when we get together and we talk, we're like, that is what that, that, that has actually happened. Um, and then the other things that I might recommend that you do is see if there's like any community-based groups that serve your cultural community. So I love to be able to be connected to federally qualified health centers. They have volunteer health opportunities. That's actually where I met one of my really good friends who is from the Caribbean. And we, you know, just in that connection, we were able to start talking about things like she was starting a, a graduate program and was experiencing things in higher education and me having some, you know, understanding of some things I read, not being a professor, but just dynamics. We were able to support one another you know, about, okay, this is what you say, or I know this person. So it's getting out into the community and looking at where are the people. There's lots of community-based groups that will welcome you in. You just get out there, start looking for them, being really intentional, volunteer, start building those relationships. And even if you are, so for myself, I'm African-American, we have African-American community, but we also have a black immigrant community. And I know sometimes there may be some fear about, well, you know, we're not quite the same ethnicity, you know, we're different. Yes, we're different, but what I have found is I've received so much love and validation from my Caribbean and African brothers and sisters over the like almost two decades that I've been here. I encourage you to, to connect because a lot of them, because they've lived 
outside the US before and they've come here, they give so much strength. Like one of my friends who is from Kenya, like if I'm having a down day, this is the person I call. She's like, look him. And it's like that boost that you need. So I would say reach out. You know, there's oftentimes like African immigrants, you know, um, meetups and things like that. Just go reach out, put yourself in the middle of it. I found that it's being welcomed because essentially you need to get culture, black culture. You need to get affirmation. And if you are in a very white space that doesn't have, and you don't have an exit strategy, you need to insert yourself into those places. And I find that most of the time you'll be welcomed. No, and I, oh man, that's just so wonderful. And I will say social media has been a blessing for me because I've connected with people literally around uh, the globe. Um, there's a few people in Africa from different places in Africa that follow my blog. They write to me and they're like, oh, I can relate to it because some of them live in Africa now, but they've lived in the UK or United States and they've gone back. And so they're like, oh, I can definitely relate to that. But I think the other thing that's important to note is that black people are a monolith. And sometimes when we hear things about black people, I think sometimes people hear African-American and they forget about our African immigrant community. Because even when I think about my school, my school has African-American students and we have African immigrant students. And I have even been more intentional about even saying that because people just look at a kid, oh, it's, it's a black kid. But it's like, there's so many different experiences. And uh, it's kind of like you said, we may feel like we're not the same because, you know, I was born in America, you were born in Africa, but there's some things that is that community, is that that love, is that support that you really have to be intentional about. And so I think the one thing I'm hearing through your message is like we have to reach out. And I think many times when we're having like an episode or event or something that's traumatic, we just want to curl up. I know when my father passed, I, I was already recovering from my hysterectomy. So I was already spending part of the day in bed anyway. But like some days I would just stay in bed. I just wouldn't get up and do anything. And I just felt horrible. And it's not that I felt necessarily less horrible when I started getting out of bed, but I saw like the light at the end of the tunnel. Like I saw like, okay, this can be better. So uh, sometimes it, it's hard and it's a process. And many of these experiences, we're not alone in. Either someone else, there's normally someone else we know that's been through it. And sometimes we're just just afraid to, to reach out. And I know in my personal, I'll speak for myself, and I know this could relate to other black women. You, you I get seen as a strong black woman. Like, yes. you know, you're doing all these things, you know. I know you you'll uh truck through and I, and even at my father's funeral, I remember some of my relatives talk to me about how well how well composed I was at the funeral mm -hmm. and I went to and I, even to the point of when I was younger my dad and I got pegged as the people you sit by at the funeral because they always have it together and so yeah. that was associated with not just my father but associated with me and for me when my father passed away as much as my dad is my role model and I admire him I'm like I don't want to be the person that's like this all to everyone because right. I know like my dad talked about, I want to go to Africa. He talked about, I want to go see a game at Lucas Oil Stadium, but he never got to do those things because he was always doing something for someone. And so his death really was like, Shantae, what do you want to do? What do you want to be? And it's like, I can't be your therapist. I can't be your support. And I think that's the flip side of it is like, we talked about having that neutral person, but sometimes we can't even take care of ourselves because we're so busy taking care of other people. So for me, even with this podcast, I hit pause. I said, Shantae, you have to figure out a plan for yourself. How do you move forward? How do you take care of yourself? And then what things are you going to put down and let stay down? And yeah. for me, if anybody's following me, they know I've been on the struggle. No, there have been times where I'm like, I'm not doing this. I'm good. Yeah. There's been times I pick some things up, but um, yeah. it's, it's difficult. But the other thing that's been difficult for people is the pandemic. Yeah. Um, it seems like it's been going on forever, right? And I know that it also has impacted 
Every, I mean, there's, I can't think of a person who can't say they haven't been impacted by that. And I don't know um, in particular, I know you talked about OT and that connection to veterans. I don't know in your particular work, um, is there anything that you've done to try to support people during the pandemic? And, and what were those things and what has the impact been on people that you have been in contact with? So one of the things, um, so through our, our county-based um, equity action team, one of the counties here, we have, there's community partnerships. And so one of the community partnerships, the organization wanted somebody from healthcare to actually come in and talk about in the early stages. So this would have been a, the, about this time last year, maybe a little bit earlier to talk about what is COVID-19 or coronavirus? Um, what are things that we should do? What are precautions, signs and symptoms? You know, we're hearing different things in the community. And so when the pandemic began, um, it was hard because as a healthcare provider, there was a lot of things that were happening within the clinics internally. You know, we were getting, you know, certain bits of information and it would, it would vary, you know, organization to organization. Then we'd hear different things from the government, but then in the community, there was other information that was out there too. So one of the first things that came up was like, wear a mask where well, there was, a segment within the community that was saying, we don't have to wear a mask. And so that information where that's coming from, you know, it was, oh, this is a hoax or we don't have to social distance. And so for months, you know, in the early months, the basketball course was still full of people because this was all a hoax and this was within the community. So one of the things that I did with this particular organization is I went in and I talked about, you know, as a healthcare provider, this is what they're telling us. We're frontline, we're still seeing people face to face in a clinic. You know, you can't get much, you know, closer to people than that. In some cases, you know, in between, you know, therapists to therapists, we may have six foot distance, but sometimes not that. If they're requiring us to wear a mask, wear a face shield, and then depending upon if someone has COVID, you have to gout. If we have to do all of that, because this is a really infectious virus, you're in the community, you don't have that. You need to protect yourself. These are the things you need to do. So I talked to them about the importance of wearing a mask and different types of masks, um, different types of materials like cloth, and if you should double layer it, washing hands, sanitizing, you know, spraying, wiping down surfaces because it's also airborne. And if you are talking to someone and they have sputum or you have someone they're blowing their nose, the, you know, the secretions and you touch the secretions and you touch a doorknob, you know, it's, you can transfer that way. And then how do you quarantine someone in your home? If someone has the virus, you know, if you have multiple generations of people in your home and you don't have a lot of space, we talked about how do you navigate it? So the biggest thing that I did in the early stages is just work with those community groups that were part of my culture community and multicultural and just educating them on this is what's happening inside of healthcare. This is what we're recommending. If you want to live, and I, I said this, I said this then, I because there were still questions about, you know, well, I've heard we don't really have to do this. And I, I've said to people, if you want to live through this virus, you need to do these things. So that's really the biggest thing that I've educated the community on that I've had contact with. A lot of people follow, some people still didn't. And unfortunately, you know, maybe you and others, I know a lot of people who have lost a lot of family members, a lot of family members, it's really unreal. Um, and I think some of that is because in our communities, there was this disbelief, there was mistrust, which is understandable considering the historical things that have gone on in our communities. And even now, you know, like the doctor in Indianapolis who died, you know, going in trying to get care, we get these disparities in care. We should be getting something, but we're not. So we have that. So that's in the back of our minds. We're like, well, I don't trust anything this institution says. And for me being a healthcare provider, I'm quote unquote, an institution too. I'm an extension of it. I'm with the community in that you should have a healthy skepticism, 
do your research. But when you have people from the community telling you, if you want to live, we need to really start trusting our community people, people who are from the community who want to see you live. We need to start trusting that. And so it's really trying to communicate that because a lot of knowing that in a lot of our communities, our hospitals are not equipped to deal with a pandemic. The only way to help us survive is to do these precautionary things. We don't have some of these hospitals that have all of these special, um, I think it's the, the units with the cardiopulmonary, the pulmonary units, I believe that's what they are, they're called. A lot of our hospitals don't have that level of care. So if you get the virus, the hospital won't have the ventilators. So if you live in a community where that's the case, you need to do precautions because if you go to the hospital and they don't have what you need, they're, you're increasing your odds for not being able to survive. And so a lot of it is really just trying to express to the community, please take the precautions, please just follow, put a mask on. If you don't like a mask, a bandana, get a t-shirt, put that over, get creative. We wear scarves at winter time. Put a scarf on. Come on, get creative. Protect yourself and protect your loved ones. No, you're right about the misinformation. And I don't know if people even remember this, but when the pandemic first, you know, became a thing that we were talking about last year, at first people were talking about the fact that black people couldn't get it. Yes, and I remember hearing that. That happened. It's like, oh, it's just, it's just the white people. We're not getting it. And what they failed to understand is when the scientists kind of looked into like why it was slower to come to our communities was the fact that a lot of us lived together. But once someone from our community got it, it spread like wildfire because we are in this kind of hub. And then when you go into the fact that many of us have other conditions like asthma, um, being overweight, um, having diabetes, high blood pressure, it just made it really, really hard. And then what you said about when you try to advocate for yourself the healthcare provider is not listening. Cause one of the last conversations I had with my father was about the doctor that mm -hmm. was advocating for um, herself. And my dad was just like, it's more of the same. And it's like, mm -hmm. that's the thing that's so frustrating. It's like, it shouldn't be more of the same. And even when you bring in the expert, right? You know, you'll get things like, oh, you're, you're part of the, of the system. Yeah. You know, even when people ask me my, about my educational expertise and I share something, oh, well, you're part of the school system. You don't get it. And I'm like, yes, I am part of the school system, but I'm also in your community. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't bring something back to my community where I'm living that's going to harm you. I'm trying to share knowledge. And even now, I think the biggest misconceptions are the biggest thing is like the vaccine, right? And so... I mean, I have people that's in my family, friends who are extremely, extremely religious, go to church several times a week. And I just get the, in these conversations about there's a tracker in the vaccine. It's not it's in the Bible. You know, the last days are coming. And look, I don't know how this is all going to turn out. I don't know when that's going to happen. Right. But I also know, like, I feel like we need to trust the science. And I also think it goes back to that stigma and shame. I have several family members that have been vaccinated and I know it because they trust me, but nobody else in our family knows it because they don't want to be known as the person that went to go get the vaccine because all these other people are saying like, you can't drink the Kool-Aid, you know, it's out to get us. Um, and so it's yeah. just, but that also impacts our mental wellness because yeah. in the same hand, immediately both my mom and dad had people they knew that passed away from coronavirus. Right. And I know so many people that's connected to me, not as close at, you know, but who has passed away or friends who has had, you know, funerals for several people in their family. And I even think about the fact my father passed on January 2nd. We didn't have his funeral until January 26th. And part of the reason was, you know, my dad had all his final affairs put together. And so he wanted to be buried at this funeral home that predominantly serves the black community. Well, every single day, and I mean literally Sunday through Saturday, they were having the funeral. So we couldn't even have the funeral earlier if we wanted to because there literally were no spaces um, to even have the funeral. And I think people forget about when I even when I heard that and I was at the funeral home with my mom, that just really impacted me. 
I'm just like, this is our community. We're having funerals back to back to back. We know people who have passed away and it's like really hard. So what do you say to people that you, you, you feel like this violence is happening, the mass shootings, you feel like there's this, these racial aggressions. And on top of that, we're in this pandemic. Like what, what do you say to people? You know, I, there's, there's, you want to have that social support. So the things that we opened up with, those are the things I say, you need to have a bucket, like a big bucket of all the tools to help you navigate all of these things. Um, I was reading, there was a post on Twitter that was just talking about, you know, when you go through like this major event, it's really a, not a good idea to tell people just do some yoga and then it's going to help you. It's going to take care of all of it. That's, that's not going to cut it. You can do that to help supplement, but you really need to have therapist, you know, and there's all types of therapists. So you can get a black psychologist. There are um, licensed professional counselors. There's LMFTs, your licensed marriage and family therapists. And then there's licensed clinical social workers. And there's other ones that are all trained in mental health. You need to have someone that's your one-to-one, somebody that is your go-to to help you navigate things. If you're going through in a community like the mass shooting in Indianapolis or the multiple, the things that have happened here in Minneapolis, these are major things. These are not things you can do by yourself. You need to have somebody that you can trust and you can talk to. And it's usually going to be somebody from your community that looks like you. And the beauty of today being a virtual world a lot of these fit therapists are online, so you don't even have to leave your house. Just go on, you know, um, therapy for black girls, look up some, you know, therapists, find someone. You can go on to psychology today. I know it's not the best platform, but there are African-American therapists that are there. Um, there's other organization, one that's called Ustress. It's E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S-I-N-C.org. It's really geared specifically to the African-American or black American community, destigmatizing mental health. The founder of it, his name is Rashawn. He just talks about his struggle with mental health. He has bipolar disorder. He has tried to commit suicide multiple times. And the last time the bullet actually jammed. So he survived, but it was a wake up call of like needing to really get engaged in mental health work. Um, and he's a practitioner those are kind of some of the biggest ones so get yourself a therapist that's the top one i'm drilling all my friends and family about this they get tired of it you know some people will say that doesn't do anything but my my rebuttal to that is how do you know it's not going to do anything if you've ever mm. not ever actually mm. done it yep and just like all your other doctors if you go to a primary care doctor and you don't like them don't go back Sometimes there's a therapist you won't gel with. Find another one. You need to find that person that gels with you to help you get through life because it's unfair to your friend and family circle to put all of this stuff that's happening in the community on them. They're trying to navigate their internal stuff too. And they probably need a therapist too. So don't put that burden on them. So get your own therapist. Find a social support group. If you're, you have a family system that doesn't believe in therapy, get on social media, start looking up people who believe in support, um, support groups. So it may mean going to NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. They actually have um, groups. One is called Family to Family. I did that group many years ago. It was transformational. It was free. You don't have to pay anything. But what you do when you go to those groups is you listen to the family members of individuals who have mental illness or, uh, you know, the spectrum of different conditions. And they talk about what is mental health? What is mental illness? What does it look like in terms of signs and symptoms? What are boundaries? You know, if you have friends and family that have depression, anxiety, bipolar, you really need to have boundaries. And if you have those conditions, people need to set boundaries with you mm. because Oftentimes we feel like, well, we're, we, we don't know, we want to be delicate, but the reality is, and what I learned through the support groups is that you need to have strong, firm boundaries that you enforce because that's going to get the best outcome. With mental health and wellness, you cannot cook away, you know, depression. You know, some people feel like I'm just going to cook, cook, cook and eat or yoga, yoga, yoga. No, 
you need a support group that can help you understand that. They can also help you come up with crisis management. You know, I think earlier you talked about how there can be highs and lows. That's actually normal in mental health and wellness. Have a strategy for that. When you're in that period, when you're at a low, what is your strategy? So find a support group and then also continue to learn. So there's tons and tons of resources. I mentioned earlier, there's a black psychologist, Dr. Rita Walker. She has an amazing book. It's called The Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. I love that book and I recommend anybody who is black heritage, whatever your ethnicity to read it. She wrote the book from the perspective of a black therapist to black community members about black mental health. It's a phenomenal book. She really talks about a lot of the research there. I would say look up if you're in academics and you, you're kind of into looking up literature, look up um, Dr. Helen Neville and Dr. Comas Diaz and their race-based trauma. They actually have inventories and assessments for that. And then if you're in the other spectrum, I have a couple other books um, that over the years that I found to be very helpful. One is the author Jeff Van Vonderen. He does a series of books for faith-based families who are looking at the intersection of faith and mental health. And if you have family members who are dealing with substance abuse, they talk about the intersection and the dynamics that come up with that. Um, phenomenal book. And then the other one that I recommend is if you have family members who are struggling with mental health and wellness and you want to know what's a healthy way to support, it's Mel Beattie. She has a book series. They're actually pretty old, but it's called Codependent No More. And it really talks about creating healthy boundaries. If you have family that has or you know anxiety, depression, and you want to be helpful, the book is about all the things not to do to be helpful. So those are kind of the nuggets that I would say that you recommend. And then also if you're an OT or health provider, I also talk and teach therapists about in your medical clinics about black mental health, immigrant mental health, and how do you build an alliance? Because sometimes depression and anxiety does not present the way it does in our communities as it does in maybe the non-Hispanic white community. Oftentimes our mental health might present a somaticized pain, body pain, They've been through all the different x-rays tests, but the pain is actually presenting as a physical pain. And so we talk through a lot of that to help clinicians understand when you see that this is someone that you want to start linking in with your psychologist or your licensed clinical social worker and getting the full picture together. So first of all, guys, I will be going back to compile all those books that she just mentioned, because I think... I love a good book and uh, many of you actually sent me books after my father passed. So I know I have other books I'm getting through, but I'm gonna read everything. Um, but I just really appreciate that advice because I think uh, even for myself, uh, when you go online and look for a therapist, like I knew I wanted a black therapist. Um, and a lot of times the therapist has a picture of herself or himself. So it gives you an idea. And actually my current therapist is not my first therapist. My first therapist, I had a few sessions. I'm like, we we not clicking. Like, uh, I mean, I, I'm like, we just not on the same page. It's like, I feel like these are the goals I'm working towards and you're yeah. pulling me over here. That's not what I want. So then yeah. I was like, well, what do I do? Because now I'm like, you know what? It's not just one black therapist. So I went back and searched and the therapist I have now, she is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, she gives me things to do. Um, she gave me grounding activities. One of the yeah. things that some people didn't know happened to me when my father had his heart attack, my mom did CPR on him and then the paramedics came. My mom called me. So I was on the phone and then I was texting my sisters. I was on the phone and I could hear everything that was happening mm -hmm. with the paramedics. So what started happening was I would literally wake up and hear the phone call. And it wasn't even my mom talking. It was the, them getting out the AED machine and all the stuff, them moving stuff. And then it started happening in the middle of the day. So I'm just middle of the day, boom, hearing the phone call. So my therapist gave me some great grounding activities to kind of interrupt that process. Mm -hmm. But those are like things like, I'm like, what is happening to me? Am I falling apart? Am I going crazy? These are the things I was saying to myself. But had I just got with the first therapist and got stuck and said, well, therapy doesn't work, just brush my hands mm -hmm. of it 
and not go back there and find another therapist, I wouldn't have someone in my corner when these things had occurred in my life. Um, so that's, that's man, I, I, I do. And the other thing, there are things out here that you mentioned that are for free. Everything's not a charge. And many uh, clinics do um, their uh, fees based on your income. So I, I wanted to mention that because sometimes people feel like finances are a barrier. And then also look at your own job because sometimes jobs have mm -hmm. resources mm -hmm. um, that may be available that you just don't know about. And I do think mm -hmm. jobs have to do a better job of presenting that stuff to people because my thing, when I think about my teachers, if my teachers aren't mentally well and they can't show up in the space in the way I need them to show up, and then they're not showing up for our students in the way they need to show up. And so mm -hmm. I just think uh, this was a great conversation. I'm like so glad to have you on here. If you are not following uh, Kimberly on social media, please do. Uh, she is a wealth of knowledge. Um, challenged my thinking just by some of the things that she posts online. And when she's posting resources, um, and I'm like, oh, I got to get that book. Oh, I got to read that. So you gave me more things that I will definitely be reading. But I thank you guys for tuning in, and I will be back soon with another episode. Until next time, guys. Thank you.